Mark and I have been hanging around the office a little more than usual because we're working on our taxes. And yes, even preachers have to pay taxes. I do have to admit, however, that I am pleased with what the tax cut did to my bottom line. Doubling the deduction and being over 65 meant there was no benefit to itemizing. And contrary to the fears of some, taking away the benefit of itemizing didn't affect giving to the church. Obviously, you don't give to reduce your taxes. You give because you love the Lord and you believe in what we're doing. Still, we all like to find ways to reduce our taxes. So, if you knew there was no penalty for cheating on your taxes, would you? After blowing past Dave and Rhonda's pokey Cadillac, <clears throat> on the way to Rich's birthday party last week, with Marilyn's Honda, of course, and not my clown car, uh, I almost hate to frame the question another way. But if you knew that every speeding ticket would be fixed, would you ignore the speed limit? Let's keep going. If you knew you could steal anything you wanted and not be arrested, because your rich and powerful daddy would cover everything, would you go on a stealing spree? If you knew your wife would overlook indiscretions, would you be unfaithful? And now... The big one. If you knew God would forgive you, would you feel free to sin? You know, some were afraid that's exactly what would happen if Paul's message of grace got out. He recognized that fear and he addressed it head on because some do believe a heavy emphasis on grace means you're soft on sin. I'll never forget the reaction I got to a sermon on drinking several years ago. I think everyone knows how I feel about drinking. But I have to admit, the Bible doesn't demand abstinence from alcohol, at least not for everyone. I wish it did, but it doesn't. So when I admitted that moderation might be acceptable for some Christians, one parent got really upset and told me they were sorry their teenager had been present to hear that because they felt I had given them permission to drink. That's not what I had done, but they thought I had. Well, some were thinking that Paul with all his teaching about grace, was giving people license to sin. They thought he should be laying down the law, that that was the way to get righteous behavior. 
So before he spoke directly to their fear, Paul said something that no doubt surprised his critics. And that is that the law actually makes sin increase. We're in Romans, the fifth chapter, first part of verse 20. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. Now, that may also come as a surprise to you, but it's what Paul said. In fact, there are several things about the law that Paul tells us in Romans that we may not have understood. Back in the third chapter, he told us that we didn't even know what sin was until the law was given. Now, he wasn't suggesting that there was no sin in the world until the law was given, only that sin wasn't identified as sin until the law was given. You know, after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they knew the difference between right and wrong. And from that time on, a sense of right and wrong was implanted in the heart of every man. Everyone had a God-given sense of right and wrong. They knew what they should and shouldn't do. They still did things that were wrong. But what they did wasn't labeled sin until God specifically identified it as such. Now, in doing so, God made it a little harder for us to think our behavior, even though we might realize it's not what it ought to be, really isn't all that bad. And even though we might still try to redefine our sin in a ways that doesn't call it sin, the only way we can do so now is to ignore what God has said. The law made it very clear that some things are sins against God. Well, then in the fifth chapter, Paul told us something else about the relationship between the law and sin that we may not have thought about. He said that sin is not imputed when there is no law, that you can't be charged with breaking a law if there's no law against what you're doing. Now, he did make it clear that you can still be judged, even condemned for doing what you know in your heart you shouldn't be doing, but you can't be judged for breaking a law until the law is given. In what he was saying, Paul was actually defending the law. But even more importantly, he was leading us to an understanding of the role the law played in bringing us to Christ. But what he said next is still a bit of a shocker. He said the law came in that the transgression might increase. That the law didn't stem the tide of sin, it made it increase. That God delivered the law not to reduce sin, but to actually cause it to increase. Now that, that may seem counterintuitive, but it's true. The law did indeed make sin increase and in a couple of ways. First, by pointing out that what we were doing was sinful, the law made it evident that sin was everywhere. Everyone sinned, and everyone 
would be held accountable for their sin. But then it did something unexpected. It not only made people aware of their sin and accountable for their sin, it actually made them want to sin all the more. Now, when we get to the seventh chapter, we'll learn how this works, how sinful passions are actually aroused by the law, how when we're told we can't do something or have something, we want it all the more. For now, all we need to note is that you don't get righteous behavior by passing a law demanding it. You don't get rid of the sin problem by passing a law making it illegal. And that's not to say a society shouldn't have laws. There are some standards that must be enforced if people are to live together in a civil fashion. But you're not going to get rid of sin by passing a law. And that was never God's intent. In fact, he sent the law so sin would be seen in all its ugliness and actually increase. He sent the law to reveal the true condition of men's hearts so he could overwhelm us with his love. For grace abounds when sin increases. Continuing on in verse 20 and then 21. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When sin increased, grace superabounded. It abounded all the more. Because the more sin there was, the more grace was needed to remedy it. You know, sin reigned in death. It was king of doomed humanity, ruling over mankind, condemning everyone to death. Adam's disobedience, his sin, cut us off from the tree of life and condemned us to death, physical and spiritual death. We were banished from God's presence because of sin and condemned to an eternity separated from him. That was the penalty for sin, Adam's sin and our own personal sin. The law then showed us the extent to which sin dominated our lives. But God didn't leave it there. Once he was sure we could understand just how lost we were, he saved us. He made it possible for grace to reign instead of death. And he did it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He sent his son to die in our place and to then rise again so he could give us his own personal righteousness as a covering for our sinfulness. And it's that righteousness, his righteousness, given as a gift that makes us fit for eternal life in his presence. The overwhelming thing about this is that this gift is given to sinful, undeserving men. 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the more sin we see in our lives, the greater that grace becomes. You know, in Luke chapter 2, we're told of a sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. When the Pharisees were critical of her humiliating display of affection, Jesus explained that she loved much because she had been forgiven much. If we're only forgiven a little, we love little. So God caused sin to increase so he could forgive us much. So grace could abound all the more. Some might then suggest, however, that if that's the case, Maybe we ought to give God the chance to really showcase his love and grace and forgiveness. Maybe we ought to sin all the more so grace can abound even more. That might work if grace was licensed to sin, but it's not. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Back in the third chapter, Paul had been quoted as saying, let us do evil that good may come. And he did acknowledge that our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, but he categorically denied having said, let us do evil that good may come. That, he said, had been slanderously reported. Now, whether it was Jews who said it, thinking that Paul's message of grace and forgiveness might as well be saying, let us do evil that good may come, or Christians who actually believed it, we can't be sure. But it has been obvious throughout the years, and we see it still taking place today, that some Christians, especially those who think themselves to be in elevated positions of privilege within the church, do have a tendency to think they are above being held accountable for their sinful behavior. And we do know that there have always been those who believe that truly spiritual men have no need for the law and can therefore be totally indifferent to its demands. That they can, in fact, violate the moral law with impunity because it has no bearing on their life. Luther called such believers antinomians, meaning those against the law. And it's quite possible that antinomians in Paul's day were justifying their sin by suggesting it was giving God a chance to be seen as a loving and forgiving God. If that's the case, they were not only using grace as a license to sin, they were actually using it as the reason to sin, as an excuse to sin. And to that, Paul said, May it never be, or as King James puts it, God forbid. He explains by asking, 
how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, he's making a very important move by asking that question. In fact, this is a turning point in the book of Romans. Until this point, he's been focusing on our standing before God, how we can be justified in his sight. Now he begins to move into the area of our responsibilities before God. You see, God didn't save us just to be able to call us righteous. He saved us so we could, in fact, become righteous. Back in the fifth chapter, Paul made it clear that we receive the gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ that we are made righteous by Christ, not by our good works. However, in the 13th verse of this 6th chapter, we're going to be told to present ourselves as those alive from the dead and our members, parts of our bodies, as instruments of righteousness to God. The focus is shifting from what God has done for us, making us righteous, to what we are now to do for God, behaving in a righteous manner. And in verse 19, we're going to discover that we are to present our members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Paul is going from justification to sanctification. The next great theme we find in Romans. Justification is what happens when I trust Christ to save me, to look at me just as if I'd never sinned. Sanctification is the process of actually becoming like Christ being transformed into his image. And obviously that cannot happen if we continue to sin after we're saved. We were saved not only from the consequences of sin, but from sin itself. As Paul put it, we died to sin. And if we have died to sin, we obviously cannot live in sin. what it means to die to sin and how we give evidence to the fact that we have indeed died to sin will be explored in detail when we look at what Paul has to say about baptism. Something we are going to actually skip over for three weeks so we can then explore what it means to rise with Christ on Easter Sunday morning. For now, it's enough to know that grace is not licensed to sin. Grace frees us from the penalty of sin, but it does not give us permission to sin. Instead, grace makes it possible for us to die to sin. It makes possible not only our justification but also our sanctification. And if we are holy, set apart 
for service to God, which is what it means to be sanctified, we cannot continue in sin. So yes, it's true. The law made sin increase, and grace abounds when sin increases. But no, grace is not licensed to sin. In fact, the only acceptable response to the superabounding grace of God is total surrender to His will, our complete sanctification. That is the only way we can possibly express the overwhelming gratitude we have for what He has done for us. We surrender to His Lordship. We stop sinning.